Hello, and welcome to another edition of Unscripted Equity Curiosity, a podcast hosted by Hedgeye Technology Sector Head. That's me, Ami Joseph, alongside Andrew Friedman of Hedgeye Communications and Felix Wang of Hedgeye China. Today, we're going to be talking about opportunities and risks using valuation as a barometer. And I'll just start off, I'm going to throw this at Andrew to begin, but I'll just start off by saying there's no way that valuation is irrelevant. Um, like any discussion, you'd rather pay less than more. You'd rather get fair value. And so it becomes a question of why has valuation become um, such a turd when it comes to the subject of investing? And in part, it's obviously because, you know, like as soon as a number is printed and it's reflected in the equity price the next morning, valuation is relatively basically known by everybody. And what's going to change that? But we all have different experiences where we still choose to gravitate to a cheap stock or a cheaper stock for one reason or another. And we all have experiences, positive and negative, in flowing with that. Let's start with Andrew. Andrew, take us through kind of like maybe best or worst or both experiences when kind of like finding your way through with valuation in terms of the stocks you covered today or in the past. Yeah, and it's a, it's a great topic because as um, starting it, I'm looking at my screen right now, and AMC stock is pushing $40 a share. So, you know, it's definitely an interesting market environment we're in today um, to talk and great topic to talk about uh, valuation um, because it does vary and there's different philosophies out there, you know, value investors, growth investors. Um, you know, my process is I'm somewhat valuation agnostic. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, great companies um, with high quality management teams with fast growth and large end markets that are largely underpenetrated can trade at very expensive valuations. And when I say expensive, I mean optically expensive, right? So I think, a, you know, one example is like Roku or Netflix, for example, like these companies for a very long time traded at multiples, you know, 30, 40 times EBITDA, um, you know, 10, 20 times sales um, valuation metrics that really from a, you know, a traditional value investor's perspective would probably cause you to turn your head, um, so I think it's just, you know, kind of important to have a process probably. So when I think about valuation, it's really, you know, a couple things. It's, you know, not only what's the stock worth, but obviously what I think it's going to be, call it five, ten years down the road. So uh, when I think about approaching a growth narrative, something like a Roku, for example, um, it was really like, you know, the, the math is how many accounts do I think that they can get three, five years down the road? Uh, what is that level of ARPU going to be? What does that translate into revenue in my out year? What do I think the margin profile is going to be at maturity? Or, you know, five years isn't really even maturity. But, you know, where I think it's going to be five years down the road, or even on a normalized basis where I think it could be, what's my level of EBITDA and what multiple I'm going to put on that, and then get to a stock price. And in the case of Roku, it was, you know, I can make the argument um, that if they get to $100 million, $100 million accounts, $100 ARPU, that you know, 10 billion EBITDA that you can get to um, roughly a three. You can translate that to about a $300, $350 equity price. 
And that's, you know, assuming that you go out five years and then you discount that back today because um, at the end of the day, like stocks are discounting mechanisms uh, for the future. Um, and that's how we approach it. I think, you know, one of the things that I always look for um, for both longs and shorts is what the rate of change is going to be in the fundamentals relative to the price today. So if I have a stock that has just come off of a rip-roaring uh, fundamental acceleration, the multiple has expanded. Um, you know, maybe the business grew faster than management expected. You have this positive revision cycle. And so the stock can be trading up on a rope uh, at a pretty high valuation. And then the question from there is, well, what is the durability of that growth rate over time? And everyone has a different duration. Um, but in this seat, I typically think about what the stock's going to do over like six to 12 month duration and then over the long term, what's it worth and frame it up that way. But, you know, you're sitting there and the stock's trading at a high multiple, it's expanded, and you think that the revenue growth rate is going to decel or KPI is going to slow down, um, then that kind of sets up potentially for a short or some type of multiple compression as the stock kind of digests this last wave of growth that they've seen. So that's one way to do it. Um, you know, I think I've seen a lot of investors, this kind of classic value bottom-up investors fall down a lot, um, looking especially like legacy media space, looking at like a Discovery or Viacom. I know we've talked about those names in the past, or even like an AMC, which was, you know, a value trap for a long time, and I don't know what you call it today. Um, it's definitely something different. But um, the, the point is, is that a stock can look optically cheap, but it can be cheap for a reason. Um, and so if you have a business that has a lot of free cash flow, you know, it could have a high free cash flow yield, 10% free cash flow yield. There could be some leverage there, maybe it's trading at like six times EBITDA, a pretty low PE ratio. You know, it could screen as being really attractive. Um, the issue for a lot of those businesses, though, is that there's usually they're usually secularly challenged. And so the question you have to ask yourself, okay, it looks really cheap today, but but you know, is this free cash flow yield durable? What's the long-term trend? Because so much that I think of a stock's value, I mean, and coming out of COVID, I, this is a big lesson I learned, is so much of the stock's valuation today is actually based in that terminal value. And for anyone that's listening who's run a DCF or any type of cash flow-based or M&A-based valuation framework, like, you know, the terminal value, you know, is a large component of it, but it's one thing to kind of see it happen in practice and equity prices versus, <laughs> you know, just running a model. Um, but going back to kind of the point about value traps is, you know, if, if I, if I think that this company today is generating a lot of free cash flow, but is going to be generating less free cash flow three, five, four years from now because they're over earning or the model is not sustainable, or there's some competitive threats, that's going to require this company to either increase spend to be more competitive, right? So you have deteriorating unit economics, then you run that through your model and you also potentially run that through a long-term terminal value. Maybe your terminal growth rate's negative potentially. And then you can quickly see how a stock that looks cheap today, actually three years from now may look very expensive. And so that's why I think, having a process around 
understanding the end market opportunity and also really having a sense of where the future valuation is going to go. Because I think where a lot of investors fall down too is just, and I, and I say investors falling down, like, I mean, I've done this, right? So I'm not trying to like pontificate, like I've made this mistake and I've learned from it and I'm going to make this mistake again. I know I am. Um, but the point is to try to, you know, limit that or at least be aware of it. Um, but, you know, oftentimes like it's a backward looking framework for understanding you know, what a company's worth. And I get it. It takes a lot of time and focus to build out a model, to understand the forward market projections. So it's easy to look at like a trailing number. But in reality, you know, a stock's going to be pricing in tomorrow. So I think that's really helpful to really understand. And, you know, I think that's something that I, at least I try to focus a lot of time um, and attention on. Um, what else? Yeah. So I think that's, you know, cheap can get cheaper, expensive can get more expensive, right? What's the what was the like the biggest mistake you ever made on specifically like buying a super cheap stock? Oh, that... I mean, do you wanna like I mean I can talk to you about like so I mean I'm I'm in my early thirties. Um I've been investing in interest in the stock market like forever, like since I was in middle school. <laughs> Um, obviously I didn't know anything then. And I probably could make the argument that I really didn't know anything in my early twenties when I first came out and I paid, I would like to call it paid second tuition in my PA. Um, and I'm only bringing this up because like, I remember in my early twenties coming out of school, I, you know, you just like taking on the world, you're bright eyed, you're bushy tailed. You're just ready to like, you just are much more comfortable taking on a lot of risk. Um, and I think that translates to a lot what we're seeing today with the short squeezes that we've seen in like AMC um, and GameStop and kind of that crazy risk appetite to buy stocks that are, you know, essentially have no fundamental value to them, um, just on momentum. So I kind of went on, like, that's a little bit of a background. <clears throat> and like I said, I bring that up because in my early 20s, <laughs> I bought a company, um, this is before Hedgeye, um, I was involved in a company called, uh, I got involved in the cyclicals at the wrong time, knowing nothing about cyclicals, right? And this was coming off of like the big commodities boom, um, coming out of the like last, the Great Recession in 08, 09. Like iron ore was going through a roof, like Caterpillar was like, cat was just, you know, 110, 120 had just like quadrupled because CapEx is coming back online. And there's this company <laughs> called Cliffs Natural Resources and Walter Energy. And they were iron one was an iron ore, one was coal. And I just I just was over my skis. I had no idea what I was doing. And um but the stocks just looked super cheap. Like um and they looked cheap because um as you know Jay who's the industrial sector right here, you know you know, cyclicals always look, uh, you, you basically want to do the opposite, right? When a cyclical uh, looks cheap, it's probably a short. And when it looks really expensive, um, it's probably, you know, a long. Um, and I didn't get that. And I was basically buying these stocks that looked super op optically cheap with leverage, like, and there was leverage involved. When right as the commodity cycle was peaking, and the stock prices started to sniff out what was going to be a big turndown in commodity prices. And ultimately, 
CapEx trends. And Walter went to zero, um, and I think Cliffs went to zero too. I didn't ride it all the way to zero, but I've lost, I lost, for me at the time, was a decent amount of money. And it was a lesson in humility, <laughs> and it was a lesson in valuation and really understanding all those things that I mentioned before. So fortunately, I haven't done that really um, in my professional research career. Um, I, you know, like I said, second tuition, it's always good to pay that early um, so you don't make a bigger mistake later. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, also kind of being involved in what you, like what, you know, what you know is also super important. Like I was no expert in commodities. Um, I was just, you know, effectively just had some view on valuation and growth rates and the stock looked really cheap and I just kind of, kind of sucked in. Um, so anyway, that, that was, you know, one example long time ago though. You're, you're triggering a lot of thoughts um, from me, uh, positives, negatives, and, and to be honest, also some like, confusion. So I would say, until not long ago, from all of my experience, I would have said, I would have explained the following. I would have said that the middle of the road um, is for cows and pigs. <laughs> You're going to get slaughtered there. Don't go to the middle of the road. Go to the extremes on either end. Go with a super growth strategy and grab onto that and hold on to it. Or go for like a super deep value approach where you're buying 10% free cash flow yield and like, you know, the cash on the balance sheet is half the value of the equity and so on and so forth. And build a portfolio in either extreme or in combination of those extremes and avoid everything in GARP because in GARP you're mixing with all kinds of expectations that are being reset on both sides, whether it's cheap enough or whether it's growth enough. And you're going to, and it's basically a lot of business school people who are looking to check boxes on both sides, right? Like, oh, this has growth and it has value. I can win here. And it's like, yeah, no shit. Like, I mean, everybody can see that, right? Like, you're, this is where you take a textbook and you apply it to investing and you make huge mistakes, especially in tech. I've seen those, that strategy get um, destroyed over time. So that's like, like a rule of thumb. But I also have to admit that there are times where I gravitate to that middle zone. And honestly, maybe it's because right now a little bit I'm finding my way there. Um, I, I'll i tell you, like, there are, for example, what's the best growth opportunity in all of enterprise software? It's probably after AWS, sorry, after AWS, because that's still growing 30% at scale at $40 billion of run rate revenue, right? So that's that's probably number one. But after that, it might be Snowflake, like right afterwards. But has Snowflake been a good stock? It's been cut in half in the last, like, seven months, right? So it it doesn't always, like, make it a good stock at any at certain given moments um if you take a duration call on snowflake it's great right you can take your duration view but duration views and i mean like people like how far will they look out right are they looking for a return in six months or is it like six years you know 10 years um duration is like an accordion that mm. extends and also contracts and while it's extending, multiples go up and the yep. inverse also. And we've been in this awesome 
duration extension period for almost a decade. I I bought um, one of the few. I don't play PA very often. Uh, I haven't in my 20 year career because I because early on, like with everything that uh, has happened with people getting tripped up and buying in their PA and recommending and writing research on it, I just I avoid it. Pretty much, just it's just I just never want to have my name on the cover of Wall Street Journal for like what I meant to be an innocent move, and then it was like, oh, I bet I put a five thousand dollar thing on and I ruined my career. You know what I mean? Like I just I've avoided that. Um, but um, but uh, sorry, so 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 one of the few times I really just went for it in in my PA was in semis in 2012. And that was the group was so super cheap. It was trading at 12 times earnings, but it was because I saw a catalyst change where, where I remember I was on the phone with Hynix talking about this. Hynix is a large memory manufacturer, competitor to Samsung, competitor to Micron. And at the time in middle of 2012, they had, they were explaining to me that in order to move to the next level of technology, they had to basically they were moving to something called double patterning with lithography, which is what you needed to do in order to go to the next node, in order to go to the next Moore's law thing. And each Moore's law thing adds capacity, right? So I'm like calling to get the bad news. This is what I was doing. I was calling to get the bad news. How much more capacity is this new node, new technology node going to add and spill into the market? And by this is after like a decade where every little thing that semis do like they literally like softly whisper in the direction of supply and boom oversupply like within six months so after a decade of getting beaten down just on excess constant excess supply i'm calling for the bad news and i'm talking to hynix and they explained to me that they moved i think it was the 20 to 27 nanometer they added double patterning for dram and in order to do that to go to 27 meter double patterning, they went from 300,000 wafer starts per month to 315,000. So I said, oh, so you guys are adding like a lot of capacity. Like you're adding, like A, you're getting your 40% increase of bits per wafer from Moore's Law, right? So you're going to, you're going to hoard, you're going to shit all over the marketplace and ruin everyone again. And you're adding wafers. Like, wow, that's so smart. Um, you're going to really kill yourselves and need to go to the bank and, and have a bankruptcy again. And they said, no. They said, with moving to double patterning, we lose, like, um, uh, yield time, meaning, like, the cycle of production extends, takes us instead of from 60 days to 65 or 70, whatever the number was. I don't remember. And so we have to add wafer starts in order to just produce the same amount. And I was like, what? Wait a second. First of all, that's hugely bullish for the equipment guys, right? Because like you're going to spend, a, you're going to add wafer capacity, which is good for the equipment guys, and you're going to add a new node that's good for the equipment guys. So the equipment guys win twice. But it was also really good for everybody. I was like, hold on a second. You're going to have to add more capacity just to produce the same amount in order to stay on the technology curve? Wow. I was like a ray of good light, of light. And, and, and based on like, you know, what I understood about lithography at the time, it was going to go from like double patterning to triple pattern to quadruple pattern, right? It was like we were going to, it was going to get worse, not better. And I was like, holy cow, this is amazing. And it also opened up, by the way, like the only side of the equipment 
area that hadn't um, done well was like the etch lithography side, etch depth side, sorry. Um, and AMAT and LAM had underperformed ASML, for example, and KLA, underperformed KLA at the time. And I was like, oh no, this is going to be amazing for etch and depth. And not just them, but also they're all the whole supply chain that flowed out of there, all the material suppliers, the equipment, smaller equipment suppliers, et cetera. So there was like a huge, it was valuation, but with catalyst. So I couldn't just do valuation. It was like the two things had to go together. So I guess what I want to say is there's, there's times where um, the duration, and, and those who lived through like the 90s, as I did as an investor, like, sorry that I'm so old, but like the point is that it, it, by 2000, I remember being in meetings, talking with companies, talking about technologies and products and things like that, and duration was, had it already evaporated from the conversation. That's how far out people were looking. People were talking about a new, like, new order, new new world. Like, I think there was a famous, like, uh, uh, article by Francis, I can't remember his last name, but he said something like the end of history. It's like that kind of, like, utopic vision of we're not counting years anymore. It's just we've arrived, mm. right? Like this was like the end of the duration conversation. And of course that was peak of the duration conversation. Yeah. But there, duration there's that saying there's that saying, right? Where it's like um you know, bull markets end when everyone's duration isn't to infinity and you know, bull markets begin when everyone's duration is tomorrow. That's right. So, That's right. And by the way, we have I've had lots of customers who so so once upon a time a, a really really smart portfolio manager told me, hey Ami, um, whenever I try to get this year's winners right, I lose. But when I think two to three years out about who are the winners on the two to three year horizon, I win this year. Okay, I thought that was really smart, and I tried to play that game for a long time. Today I would say that's actually a much shorter duration than much most people are are looking at five years, six years, especially in software. You're, you have to be thinking five, six years in order to get it right, in order to get, in order to play this game, right? And well, I keep having, I keep having meeting more and more customers uh, of ours on the institutional side who keep telling us, oh, we're like a private equity shop, but we invest in, in public equities, meaning our duration is super, super long, right? Like seven years plus. And I, I, I got to tell you, like in 2012, 13, 14, even 15, that was a really smart and unique strategy. But hey, I feel like I, I've kind of heard that a lot already. And maybe it's the end of a long road of people saying that. I mean, isn't that already in the books at this point? So I, I do see that value, that duration can snap back. Right now, for example, the year to date, you guys have seen, I mean, we've, we we still have our still best, the same best ideas. We've, but we've talked about, like, we've thrown cold water a little bit on Twilio, even one of our best ideas long. We've talked about looking for red. We've talked about... Uh, We've talked about some saturation. We've talked about digestion. Um, and some of the names I've written about in our HTS and our weekend uh, technology uh, pro, uh, like curiosity note, are things that have maybe a little bit more like, for example, Juniper. It's been left for dead. It's been left for dead and things are improving. There's actually catalyst for change. And there's sort of derivative benefits from the shift to 400G, uh, 400 gig optical, and also from the move to 5G. There's like all these things that could actually benefit. Nokia, we've written about Nokia positively for the first time in years. I can't even remember the last time before this year that I wrote positively about Nokia, but Nokia actually 
should be. They, you know, they 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 achieved parity in technology for radio access networks for 5G with alongside Ericsson um, sometime in mid to late last in second half of last year. By the way, it was coincidentally like three weeks after this article quoting Vodafone like trashing Nokia and saying they will not be a player in 5G ran. But like um, lo and behold, Vodafone's going to probably end up working with Nokia for 5G. I was probably a misquote, I guess. But like you know, the stock went down 20% that day. But I think like, you know, so another example of cheap can always get cheaper, but there's a catalyst here. Once they achieve parity and 5G is on the rise and you know, all these kinds of things and like, wow, there's actually an opportunity. So I think that there are moments where where there are cheaper stocks who, who can improve, but you have to have the improvement in hand to make that worth it. And I still don't know the answer to this question which is even if you get that like, oh, I bought a super cheap stock and then I got the catalyst right and I got the this and I got the that. Going all the way forward with all of that, get to the end and look back. Would it have been better just to buy like a growth stock or the index and like just would you have made just the same amount of money? I don't know. Hmm. I don't know the answer to that. Um, yeah. Well, so anyway, well, that's, that's, that, you're, getting into, you're getting into active versus passive management and well, that's I mean, a, not in that. I mean, long you know what I'm saying, though. I'm saying, yeah. like, what my point is more like, does valuation actually work, or is that a mirage? That, that's, I guess, maybe like, and yeah. and and I'm sure, I'm sorry that, like, I, I would say in the past I've been clear-headed about this subject, and I would say today I'm a little less clear-headed, I don't, and yeah. I'm not sure. Maybe well, it's because I, I, of where we are yeah. with the cycle. Well, I think you made a really good point. I mean, I, th- I like your characterization before of like bucketing, like value, GARP growth and kind of like the two ends of the spectrum and um you know i and i i think you're right i think if you just are kind of dogmatic or you just pick a certain style factor and think of it in an absolute sense um over time that's difficult right because i think you know where you make the big like long you know the money on the long side and on the short side is is navigating the change within those buckets right so kind of what I was saying before, like if you can find a stock that's kind of like value and maybe it's going to become more GARP or a high growth stock that is facing unit market saturation or unit, you know, saturation um, because they're coming up against limitations of their adjustable market. Um, And maybe it becomes a high growth stock to a GARP and the multiple compresses, right? Like under, like being able to have the, um, insight to be able to know where those companies are going to track within that spectrum. I think that's how you can create a lot of value over time. Um, but I, I think just being like, holy GARP, holy high growth, like, yes, I mean, I think it works, but then I think you're more subject to kind of style factors, right? Like what's working and what's not. And then I guess the only other the point that I thought of where you were talking about duration is I do think like duration matters a lot. Um, and what's interesting is I think, and you know, like you can have a great company, but is like, I mean, you know, is, I mean, what's Twilio's price today, Ami? It's around you know, like, 3.30. Okay. It's around 3.30. Okay. If Twilio, would you be just as bullish on Twilio today at 3.30 if it was trading at 7.50? No, today I think it would have like, it would have taken out it would have taken out my like 
two-year price target from here, or maybe two, two-and-a-half, three-year price target from here. Yeah, so so then it's like and, – and that's and that's the thing. Like being able to have that – I think having that, like, ability to understand valuation and what something's worth and at least having a framework to understand it is important, you know, because otherwise you just can hold – and, like – and then we can – like we, we're kind of – I'm kind of pushing us into like the whole like never sell crowd. Like there's this, um, do you just hold forever? Um, and I think the answer is like, you know, if you look at a hundred years of equity investing, like stocks for the long run, you know, it works. Like it compounds consistently at eight to 10%. Um, there's some really great companies that if you just owned for decades, you would have made a lot of money. Um, but if you also look back at like the history, those companies have like evolved. Like the man- management teams have launched new products. They've adapted uh, to you know changes in their end market, and you know some have died, but some have done you know really well. And I think that's kind of also that added element here, right? Because maybe Twilio has some optionality, right? Where if they get into a new business or they take market share or something, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know Twilio. You know Twilio. I'm just using Twilio as an example, where maybe, I don't know, like you're thinking $700 today, like two or three years out, but two years from now, like assuming you're right and the business is trading at 700, maybe there's some adjacency that they can get into, which unlocks unlocks more of their TAM and therefore it's, you know, a $1,500 stock, right? And so, you know, being able to kind of update your thesis and, you know, think about it, valuation and, growth and a more dynamic framework. I think that's something that's also really important. I don't know if you would agree or disagree with anything I just said, but you just well, kind of I guess I, I guess what I would say I, I like I wanna I wanna fiercely agree in terms of like the person who I am. However, I will admit that the that the portfolio manager in this world who I whom I admire the most and has put the hurt on the rest of the world, and nobody really knows his name, and I'm not even going to mention here because his fund is closed and you can't even buy it. But um, but he wakes up in the I don't need, and by the way, I don't even know if he could like on the phone here today with us like explain say it this way. But I've observed him for two decades now. He wakes up every morning and he buys growth. Like back when people were worried Greece was disappearing, he woke up in the morning he bought growth. Every like this is what he does. He comes to the office, he buys growth, right? He goes remote, he buys growth. He wakes up, he finds the 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 thing that. But he's good at finding growth, right? He knows what is real growth and what's not. And he, he the, when he finds real growth, he makes them huge positions, and um and he's literally put the hurt on the market for two decades. So mm-hmm. I, I so I I wish I I was more like that. It's not. Yeah. Who I am, I kind of tend to dance the tune that I that I dance to the music that's playing. I I think maybe more of who I am, and maybe that's more of a signature of my generation. That the guy I'm referring to is. Um, well, look. I mean, the la- let's be fair. Like, I mean, the last like decade, at least since 08 or not. I mean, look, we were in a pretty much a bear market for the early part of the 2000s, right? Um, and then coming out of the Great Recession, we were in you know ZERP. Um, kind of a deflationary environment, free money environment that was really conducive to growth. So, no, and disruption. So there's also kind of that style factor, macro backdrop, I think, that 
it was really conducive. And what's interesting though is coming out of like coming out of this cycle is like it's very inflationary, right? And so like growth has started to underperform. And we we saw the same thing happen kind of in oh if you remember like oh nine through eleven. So I do wonder, you know, if this kind of rebound that we're seeing and kind of the underperformance of growth, like I think it's going to turn eventually. Um, but it's it, it does make you kind of wonder, like, you know, actually, like, are we going to be like, is the next decade going to be more inflationary? And what does that mean for like cost of capital and growth stocks going forward? Because as you very well know, like, you know, like, it, the value investors ruled the day for a lot of the 90s for a long period of time and like early 2000s and then growth was in favor and we kind of go through these mega cycles um so it would be really interesting to see um if kind of valuations which is kind of the premise of this call like re-rate or if the way that you get paid on certain stocks which historically people have just been you know paid and they're trained like you know to just buy the dip and buy growth because it's what's worked. But if it stops working and we go back to kind of a value-based framework because we're in this more inflationary environment, um, you know, different types of stocks can work and kind of force people to go back to, you know, older methods of thinking about things rather than just kind of growth at all costs. But we won't know if that's the case for a long time. Yeah, I, I, we haven't involved Felix, but we're already uh, we're already maxing out our time. Felix, I apologize. Um, I think we're I think we're sort of at the end here. Um, we're going to have to circle back to you and continue the conversation evaluation. I'm sure this is not the only conversation we're going to have here about valuation, but um, I know for me it's triggering a lot of thoughts, like a like a to do list of things that I would like to do. <laughs> um, so I so I appreciate this conversation and. Um, and I thank you, everybody, for joining as well. And Andrew, uh, thanks for being on with me. And Felix, thank you for um, letting the conversation flow. And I'm sorry that we didn't involve you. And we'll jump in and, and grab you first on the next one. And thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Unscripted Equity Curiosity. Thanks very much. The preceding has been presented for informational purposes only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute an investment recommendation or legal tax accounting or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgeye is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the Terms of Service at Hedgeye.com slash Terms of Service.